From the shadow of Rockford Tower, behind enemy lines, in the belly of the Delaware Way Beast, this is the Highlands Bunker Podcast. We're emergency podcasting tonight, folks, and we're bringing something uh, to you I think is important. Uh, we're uh, virtual, so Super Producer Carl is monitoring, and uh, I want to welcome back uh, Mike Brickner from the ACLU of Delaware. Hello, Mike. Hey, Rob. I feel like we only talk on an emergency basis because I was here right after Dobbs last time, so I, I don't know. It's not not good. <laughs> yeah, when I see you, I know something's wrong. Actually, well, it's. I will say this. I wanted to start out uh, because the first time you were here, you were just new to the area, and we were just talking about ACLU stuff and your background and uh, your your hometown Cleveland Guardians pulled a, you know the Phillies and the Guardians both did the same thing big sweep in the wild card series and now uh moving on so baseball in October we're all we're all into it i know C- Carl's uh, Astros your uh Guardians and uh you know the fighting Phils they're all they're all still in it I like to think that the Guardians uh, got rewarded for finally changing their name. You know, since it's Indigenous Peoples Day, we'll uh, celebrate that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for real. I, I just, uh, I just listened to an interview uh, about a guy who wrote a book about the 1830 um, Indian Removal Act and the politics around it and the planning around it. Um, and it was uh, maybe that's something we can we can talk about for next. Well, we can do it any time, but next Indigenous Peoples Day would be good because I think a lot of people don't really grasp um, how that was a, a capitalistic plan to to just run people out um, and replace them with you know, uh, you know neo feudal aristocrats and slaves. So it's it's a it's a sick history. I'm I'm glad that um, people are starting to get more interested in it. And, you know, at least people saying Indigenous Peoples Day. I mean, that was uh, unheard of when I was a kid. I, I don't even know if anybody would would even understand what you were talking about. So um, I guess that's there's, there's progress of a sort anyway. So we are here to discuss um, the Supreme Court ruling, which negated um, HB uh, 75, which would have co- codified the ability to vote by mail in every instance, and same-day voter registration, I believe. Um, that, that was not passed. I guess 75. Well, let's walk us through the beginning, because we, we tried to do something from a constitutional standpoint for a set of reasons. There was sort of, uh, there was procedural issues with that, and I want to get into that, and then there was an effort to try to codify them outside of the constitutional uh, route, and that's where we ran into uh, to trouble, legal legal trouble. So, can you walk us through sort of how we got to the situation that we're in? Definitely. So, um, you know, first of all, like I think everyone should recognize, um, you know, Delaware is right now in a pretty small minority of states that don't allow vote by mail for any reason. Um, That, uh, you know, most states do offer this. Um, It's something like 35 or so plus District of Columbia. 
Um, and so we're we're pretty you know small and 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 not uh, and kind of behind the times by not offering that. And that really I think um, came a bit to a head in the 2020 election. Um, now earlier uh, in the 2019 to 2020 legislative session, the first leg of a constitutional amendment to allow anybody to be able to cast a vote by mail without an excuse passed. And it passed pretty overwhelmingly uh, in the state legislature. Uh, there were Republicans and Democrats who voted for it in both the House and the Senate. Um, and it looked like it was going to you know, move through. Uh, but then the pandemic happened. And so Governor Carney had to issue an emergency order so that we could vote by mail in the 2020 election because you know the we had to wait until 2021 to start to pass the second leg of the constitutional amendment. Yeah, and we even talked about that before, just so people know. And, and uh, actually, Carl was the one who taught me, and and I think was the first one to sort of explain it um, that constitutional amendments um, have to pass through two. Uh, Two separate uh, general assembly sessions, separate uh, and, and consecutive, right? You can't like take two years off and then try and pass it again. It has to be back to back, right? So separate and consecutive, so that there's an opportunity. I guess if uh, we have a rogue general assembly for some reason, and they're trying to do something to the constitution, uh, we have an opportunity to intervene electorally um, if that becomes necessary. So it does in that sense. There's a logic behind it. So in 2019, we, we, we get the whole package together. It passes in, on a bipartisan basis. 2000 comes, COVID. We go to basically that, but in an emergency, as emergency measures. Yep. So Governor Carney uses his emergency uh, uh, powers, and he lets folks vote by mail. There was a challenge to that by the Republican Party, but that was struck down by the um, uh, state Supreme Court, and they said, no, we can continue on with the emergency orders. Um, and, you know, then really we dealt with the ramifications of the 2020 election, because if you recall, you know, leading up to the actual election, uh, national Republicans, particularly former President Trump, were casting all of these aspersions on vote by mail and saying that, you know, there was all sorts of fraud and that there were going to be people who weren't registered voters uh, voting by mail or people who, um, you know, were not citizens and or they were going to throw out certain ballots. All of these, you know, wild, unfounded accusations of fraud. But then when Trump lost the election, those accusations really went into overdrive. And, you know, now across the country, we're seeing where more and more folks in the Republican Party are um, uh, are avowed believers in uh, the fact or, or, in, or in the idea that Donald Trump won the 2020 election, so much so that we have people who are running for secretary of state in several states, people who are running for governor, attorney general, uh, for House representative or senator who believe this. And so, you know, that little bit of controversy, you know, we like to think the Delaware, you know, we're very congenial and uh, that kind of stuff doesn't seep into politics here, but it absolutely did because then we brought uh, House Bill 75, which was actually the second leg of the constitutional amendment 
to get voted on in 2021. And we thought, oh, there won't be any problem to this because it passed with pretty pretty broad bipartisan support last time. But when we attempted to try and get votes for it, um, there, there was not a Republican to be found um, in, 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 in the House to be able to vote for it. And you have to get, as, as the numbers were last session, you had to get at least two Republicans to vote for a constitutional amendment in order to get two thirds. And so HB 75 was just, you know, simply not going to pass. Yeah. And let's be clear. So the, the, the COVID uh, emergency uh, is ended. We go to pass the second leg, HB 75, for the constitutional amendment, and Republicans who had voted for it in 2019, in in this political environment, the Trump political environment, where everything's fake and nothing counts, and we tried to storm the Capitol on January 6th, uh, there are uh, Republican representatives who changed their mind and vote against it. Um Two of them, I want to make sure that I understand, because I, I, they're they're both running in in competitive general elections uh, coming up. So I think it's important to at least mention that uh, that Hensley in Middletown, uh, who's running against uh, Terrell Williams, uh, who is going to be on the show this Sunday, and Mike Ramone, uh, who's stuck in that Pike Creek district like grim death. You know, he's he's Mr. You know, Mr. Bipartisan, you know, not MAGA, uh, but he changed his vote. And, you know, the only reason you would change your vote in this case is a political decision that, you know, you know, once once the 2020 election came down, you got to tow the MAGA line. And that's what they did. So I, I just want to be very clear about that. Uh, you, you really need to jump on, uh, especially the WFP endorsed candidate Frank Burns uh, in in Pike Creek, because, you know, I, you, you may think that you have a, um, you know, a your, your grandfather's Republican re- representative, but you don't. Um, so, you know, get behind those two candidates, because that's really what we're talking about here, I think, is two people who uh, switched their vote for political reasons. And that's why we're talking to each other today. Yeah. And, and again, you know, definitely those two were, were two of the Republicans who did it. There, there were uh, nine others. There were 11 Republicans who actually voted for it uh, in the previous legislative session who all voted no. And again, this is why we never expected that there was going to be a problem uh, passing this in the House, because there was this broad bipartisan support. But again, after all of the ugliness um, on the national level with uh, the accusations of fraud in the 2020 election, you know, people just came out against it. And you know, we, uh, we we do a lot of our voting rights advocacy uh, along with the Delaware Voting Rights Coalition. And so we've been organizing and doing, you know, legislative visits, lobby visits, uh, le- lobby days down in Dover. We've been doing calls and postcards and all sorts of stuff to um, all of the representatives, including Hensley and Ramon. And, you know, they um, just were totally, you know, not responsive to a lot of the concerns. And some of them said, well, you know, we 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 don't like the language of the amendment, even though we voted for it two years ago, but we're not going to vote for it now because we think it should be tweaked or should be changed a little bit. And, you know, to me, that was just sort of a, I think, craven uh, attempt just to slow down the works, because, you know, if they don't vote on the exact same amendment again, 
we have to start the process all over again, which, you know, it's a minimum of three years to pass any constitutional amendment in the state of Delaware, because you got to pass in the first session, wait two years and then pass it again. Um, and so it's a long, convoluted process. I think Craven's a good word for it. I mean, it's nakedly political, uh, but you can't just say, you know, hey, we're, we're MAGA now. You know, we're, we we sort of tacitly approve of the at least the idea that there's something wrong with the elections when there isn't. Now, you may disagree with, you know, telling people that, you know, to go storm the Capitol or to turn up at these events or whatever. Um, but you're you're putting your your representative vote, you know, your your imprimatur on a no turning it down for political reasons. That's it. Um, I will say this. I'm interested just to take a quick aside because uh, I've had some discussions about this recently about like taking the time to do all of this organizing and lobbying and, and leg hall visits and postcards and phone calls. Um, I, I, I presented it originally to someone to ask them whether they thought something like like a, like Namdi just surviving a a very close primary scare would would influence his positions on things like tenants' rights, um, real estate stuff, landlord stuff. And my view is that it won't. That he is still going to be serving the same interest, regardless of whether he people show up at his office or yell at him at a town hall or even put up a candidate who almost beats him by seventy five votes or whatever. So I wonder whether, and I maybe obviously I'm not going to ask you to like disparage the organizing that's being done because I wouldn't do that either. But I wonder whether we ex- we expect too much out of that kind of stuff uh, because these people are just craven, you know, they're cowards, and so they'll just make up some story to your face and do whatever that they feel is necessary from a political standpoint. So I, I mean, I wonder what you think about that, just in general, about those efforts to sort of. Um, to sort of to, to lobby to, to, to lobby these representatives. Yeah, well, I, I think it's a continuum. You have to do all of the above because, you know, if we didn't have people doing, you know, lobby day visits or legislator meetings or sending postcards and calling and emailing and all of that stuff during the legislative session, they wouldn't hear from us at all. Right. And so they need they need to hear from the public and they do need to be accountable to the public. And then that accountability flows into um, the elections, right? And like, I'm very proud, you know, we started this year um, our Vote uh, our vote Delaware website, which has um, a, uh, a candidate questionnaire that asks about uh, voting rights and reproductive freedom and immigrants' rights and smart justice and education equity and ask very specific questions of these legislators. What are your positions here? Are you going to commit to doing X, Y, or Z? And we publish that. And then we've also taken those answers and you know we use them in the primary. We were active in RDs 1, 2, and 13, um, calling out the records of the incumbents and uh, uh, showing the position of the people who were running against them. And I think that that has to be part of the organizing strategy. You know, you make sure that they uh, hear what the people want while they're uh, serving in office. And if they deliver, great. And if they don't, they need to be held to account and that they have to also hear from the voters at the ballot box. And 
you know, I can't predict what's going to happen to folks who, um, you know, uh, still win even under some of those accountability campaigns. But I have seen in the past where that has caused some people to sort of come to the light and to act differently. I've also seen where it doesn't. And so, you know, that accountability doesn't end just because they won that first or, or that next election, right? Because there's always another election coming out. There's going to be, you know, two years of um, of, of lobbying uh, in the legislature. And that's going to be the story for the voting rights work too. Um, you know, we, so, you know, if, if, uh, Democrats pick up the two seats in RD9 and RD21 and hold all other Democratic seats, we will have a very slim Democratic majority, uh, a two-thirds majority in the House. But you have to keep every single Democrat together to be able to pass uh, that constitutional amendment. And that doesn't always happen either, right? right? And so, you know, it's it, it's it's going to be a very difficult process. But I think I, I think you have to do the organizing during the legislative session, and then and then you have to you know make sure that they feel accountable at the ballot box too. Yeah. Well, I I do want to plug two um, two Andrew Galvin stories uh, in the Delaware Call uh, because they have some some links and some more support information from this, and it'll lead us into our next topic. Uh, because in, in November of 2021, he wrote about um, the, the, the failure of HB 75, but the, the, the what became HB 346, which was what passed uh, earlier this year. Uh, so he talks about that. And then later on, um, he did publish uh, in January a rep- uh, some reporting that he did with some FOIA requests he made to the uh, Board of Elections. One of the... One of the scaremongering tactics is 50,000, 100,000 ballots are being mailed to the wrong addresses, we can't, and we can't account for them. Um, so what Andrew did was find out how many ballots were actually returned because they went to the wrong address. It was 19,000, and also was able to uh, to explain what the process was for dealing with those. Um, so they all get dealt with in a very uh, efficient administrative manner, and so there is no problem. Um, there wasn't a problem when we did this for COVID. And as you mentioned, Mike, this isn't a problem in other places. I believe uh, in the Pacific Northwest, Washington or Oregon has been doing this for 20 years, I think. Uh, no excuse vote by mail. And so um, it really it really does, uh, really does work. Um, do you want to just talk a little bit about it in general, where it's been and how it's worked? Yeah. So um, again, there's there's something like 35 states that um, allow anybody to cast a ballot by mail. I believe the numbers at six right now that have all vote by mail or or almost all vote by mail systems. So again, Oregon and Washington are two that folks know a lot about, and uh, Colorado and Utah as well. It's a lot of Western states where everybody just votes by mail. Um, and, and there are a few like in-person options for people who maybe have a disability or really need to go in person and can't vote by a paper ballot. Um, but, you know, it works very well. And there's, you know, a, again, very few instances of, of fraud and certainly none that are wide scale. And I think that, you know, the Republicans sort of um, show their hands here where, um, you know, they bring up concerns about security and accuracy of our system. 
but they also oftentimes oppose those the very reforms that would help with some of that um, accuracy. So, for instance, like one of the reasons why a, a ballot uh, or or any kind of election mail would go to the wrong person or to to the wrong address is because the person hasn't updated their address with the Department of Elections. So. Um, in 2021, we just passed uh, uh, SB5, which is automatic voter registration. We're waiting for it to go into effect. But once it does, anybody who does business at the state BMV will get their uh, uh, voter registration automatically updated. So if I go there and I move and the BMV uh, says, oh, you know, Mike moved to 1234 Main Street, it's going to communicate to the Department of Elections and change that address so that um, those voter rolls are updated. And similarly, the same issue happens with same-day registration, which was also just struck down, is that for a lot of folks who are especially like low-income people or people who just move frequently, maybe they don't have a driver's license because they don't drive or they can't afford to get the driver's license or they can't afford their car, um, they utilize same-day voter registration, and they go in, and same-day registration is not just used for brand new voters, it's also used for those voters that need to update their address. And so it's a way to actually make our election system more secure and more accurate while also increasing access so that more people are able to cast a ballot. Um, but again, you know, all of those types of reforms are also opposed by, um, you know, mostly Republicans and people who aren't in favor of expanding the franchise. And, you know, so it it makes their concerns about the accuracy of vote by mail sort of, I, I think, to me, to seem to ring really hollow, in addition to the fact that there's just really no no evidence of widespread voter fraud um uh, uh in the vote by mail system yeah so this gets us up to the passage of hb346 earlier this year uh and then uh actually it was I, I didn't i knew there was going to be a challenge but carl tipped us off um once it got filed so jordan howell and i went and we went to the uh you know we went to the court we got all the documents we wrote that up in the call uh when uh Julianne Murray was going to uh, was going to appeal it to the Chancery Court, which uh, they won. Appealed to the Supreme Court, they won. This law is unconstitutional. Um, the one thing I'll say, well, two things. One is, from the letter of the law, it does appear unconstitutional to me, just based on the work that I've done with Jordan, with Carl, with Bill Martin. Um, but again, I think what you need, to, what I always remember is these arguments for constitutionality are only made in the effort to, to in this case, um, block the Democratic franchise from expanding or, or making it easier. You know, so it should be easy. You know, if that's your civic duty to go vote, it should be you, we should be making it as simple as possible. They don't want to do that. So the fact that the Constitution says X or Y. Um, is really a second order business. Um, this what it is is there are there are a contingent of people, the reactionary Republicans, that do not want to make the make voting easier. They don't want to expand the franchise to people who maybe couldn't get out and vote before. Um, they they uh, 
They disagree with things like making Election Day a federal holiday. They disagree with making, you know, uh, extending voting hours or, or days even. Um, we do have a little bit of that now, but it's not as widespread as it is in other places. So that's really what we have here is a, is a doctrinaire, um, reactionary political battle of expanding the franchise. And, it, and um, the fact that um, the fact that it's in the Constitution and we, we, we create this, this sort of, uh, you know, magic around these words on the paper that somehow they can't, they've never been wrong. And they like, whatever they say, if we don't follow them, that the earth implodes, um, that's all fake. Um, they just don't want people to vote. I mean, that's, that's what, that's sort of where we're at. So what is the implication going to be for this general election uh, today on what is the tenth, the tenth of the tenth. So we're October ten. We're, we're rolling up here uh, next month to a general election. What? Uh, how is that going to be done? And what can people expect? Yeah, I I, I will answer that. I I do want to say you know in terms of the constitutionality of um, both same day registration and vote by mail. Um, you know, none of the folks who moved these bills through the legislature did so you know, blind to um, any poten potential issues. And, and it wasn't as though there weren't a whole lot of people who, um, you know, looked this over, discussed it. Um, we, you know, at, at the ACLU consulted several different legal minds here in Delaware. Um, and, you know, what the bill, the, the bills that ended up being passed, um, especially the vote by mail bill was, really not outside of what a lot of other states are doing. So there are other states that have similar state constitutions like Delaware's that are very restrictive in terms of absentee voting. Um, one uh, that just passed uh, recently was uh, Massachusetts. Uh, they were another state that would not allow um, no excuse absentee voting. And so they passed a universal vote by mail bill that said anybody can vote by mail. Um, and their state Supreme Court just upheld theirs. Um, similarly, Pennsylvania has really restrictive language in its constitution. Several state courts have also upheld Pennsylvania's uh, law as well. I believe their state Supreme Court is still um, looking at it uh, and, and, and will rule soon. But, uh, you know, again, it wasn't outside of the norm of one, what other states were doing. But also looking at Delaware state constitution, it does say that the legislature has the uh, authority to prescribe the means by which people vote. And so, you know, again, looking at, uh, you know, voting by mail is one mean that you can have to cast your ballot. Um, if you allow everybody to vote by mail, that's different than absentee voting, which is just for those voters who have a disability or out of the country or out of the state. And that those systems were also set up very differently, too. For instance, like with absentee voting, you have the ability to vote electronically. You can actually vote by email if you wish, if you're using the absentee system. You could not do that under the vote by mail system. You could also enter into the permanent absentee voter list if you're an absentee voter, whereas you couldn't if you were a vote by mail user. And so, like, they were different separate systems. And again, our analysis was that, you know, that that should have been permissible under the state constitution. I will say same day registration, I think, was a surprise for everybody how the state Supreme Court ruled. Um, even the vice chancellor in his ruling upheld same day registration as 
being constitutional. There was never any kind of discussion, as far as I know, in the legislature that we needed to amend the Constitution to do same-day registration. And so, you know, it's really disappointing that, um, you know, essentially the state Supreme Court has kind of put a freeze on any kind of positive, you know, democracy uh, uh, legislation. Um, you know, we, we'll really have to consult what the state constitution says before we move, you know, passing something that's only in statute, I think, in the future. Um, but in terms of the effects for this upcoming election, uh, there's going to be a few. So one, for folks that need to use same-day registration, that option is not going to be there. And the voter registration deadline is only a few days away. I believe it's October 15th. Um, so folks that might not have been planning to register, they're gonna have to go out and register right away uh, because they're not gonna have same-day registration. And again, who we know that uses same-day registration are you know, BIPOC folks, uh, low-income people, students, folks who rent and move frequently, um, disproportionately all of those groups utilize same-day registration. They're not going to have that option. Um, and so we're trying to do a big push to make sure people know that the registration deadline's coming up so that they're registered before the November election. There are also a whole bunch of folks uh, who already put in their vote-by-mail request. So right now, as we're speaking, the Department of Elections is preparing to send out notifications to all of those people saying, you can't uh, vote by mail anymore. Um, you're gonna have to show up on election day or during the 10 day early voting period and cast your ballot then. Um, and so, you know, that's going to, I think, lead to, you know, confusion on all parts. You know, there will be people who will show up who think that same day registration is still in place and they're not gonna be able to utilize that. They're gonna be people who are sitting at home waiting for their vote by mail to get there and um, and, and uh, never receive it. Um, and so that will be an issue. I think the other big thing with vote by mail and, and same day registration is that both of them help to take some of the crush off of election day voting. So same day registration helps because you you don't have like the issues of, oh, I didn't update my address. So now I have to like fill out a provisional ballot or other kinds of stuff, which tends to take a lot of time at the polling place. And then <clears throat> vote by mail, we had tens of thousands of voters use vote by mail just in the primary election, um, which was way higher than the last primary election in 2018 that we had had. Um, and so we expect that there are going to be now a lot more voters who were who were previously planning to vote by mail who are going to show up on election day, and that just leads to longer lines, um, you know, more potential strain on the election system, and you know, a lot more work for our election officials to do. So it's not a good thing for um, this upcoming election, and I I want to point out too that this isn't the end of it. Um, again, you know, passing vote by mail will typically take three years at minimum to do to get uh, it through the constitutional amendment process, which means that we're not going to have vote by mail or same day registration for the 2024 presidential election and, and gubernatorial election. And so that's a big, important election here in Delaware that we're not going to have those options. Um, and so that's going to be, I think, really unfortunate for a lot of voters and that people are going to suffer because of that. Yeah. Well, I do want to I do want to mention just so I can uh, 
sort of respond to what you said about the constitutionality of it. I, I, I in no way feel like um, when H when HB four uh, three forty six was put together that it that you know it was there was some sort of disregard or it was you know the uh, sort of like a flippantly just said well we'll just do you know whatever we can do. Um, I certainly know that you know the representatives and the senators with legal help put something together they thought you know they could all get behind and it would work um so it, 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 that's the first thing I, I i appreciate you saying that because it is important to note well just to, just to interrupt i think um actually speaker schwarzkopf said it the best uh when they were voting on it at one point right before they voted on it, he said you know what guys half the room uh, of, of legal scholars think that it's constitutional half don't and the answer is we're not going to know until the Delaware State Supreme Court uh, uh, rules, and they did. So, Yeah, and far be it from me to say anything good about uh, Speaker Schwarzkopf, so I won't. Uh, but I, I also have had other conversations with sort of people who look at my legal stuff and give me legal advice because I'm not an attorney um, or a constitutional scholar. Uh, and... The other piece of that is a political piece. You know, we have three branches of government. They're equal, uh, and they are supposed to be sort of the, the checks and balances in an adversarial system. It's not the Delaware way where the General Assembly's and appendages of the executive branch and the governor, or they get a, a, you know, they get a Supreme Court justice to come in and tell them what to do beforehand to make sure they can pass, you know, they do that stuff too. Uh, the, 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 the system is supposed to be an adversarial system. So the idea that, you know, this was passed, there was good reason to pass it. We knew people weren't going to like it because they don't want, they want to look, you know, they want to take a very doctrinaire view of every letter to, you know, disenfranchise people basically. Uh, so, you know, I, I don't, I don't have any problem with that, with, with, with going up against the judiciary uh, or going up against the executive or, or the, or vice versa. Uh, because I do think that that's important for, you know, the the representative piece to run properly, because if they're the Delaware way would basically say, well, they're all on the same team and just do, you know, just do whatever. And that's that's not going to fly with me. So, well, uh, here's one thing that's uh, th this is uh, kind of law wonky, but you might appreciate. Um, so, you know, one of the um, groups that helped to provide legal support to the Delaware GOP in this challenge is a national group called the uh, Pub Public Interest Legal Foundation. And, you know, by their name, they don't sound that bad, right? Oh, Public Interest Legal Foundation, all great. You know, whenever they have a name like that, you usually just have to do a little digging, you'll find out. So they're a group that has done, um, you know, voter suppression litigation for a number of years. They've done a bunch of uh, litigation encouraging more voter purges, litigation against vote by mail. So they provided legal support to the Delaware GOP to help strike down uh, these two laws here in Delaware. They're also the same group that is going in front of the uh, U.S. Supreme Court uh, in a month or two to argue the independent state legislature theory uh, to say that state Supreme Courts don't shouldn't have any kind of jurisdiction over what state legislatures want to do in terms of voting rights, which to me, those two things of them supporting the Delaware State Supreme Court and striking down uh, our vote by mail and same day registration laws 
And then Pilf also saying, but we don't want them to strike down any like racially gerrymandered maps or other things that the state legislature passes seem to be two conflicting ideas. But again, the whole purpose here isn't ideological purity or consistency. It is gaming the system and getting uh, and, and, and preventing people from having political power and political votes. Yeah, I mean, it's that's an interesting wrinkle. I I I I didn't realize they were the same. I mean, I shouldn't be surprised that they're the same people. It makes actually sense the way you explained it. But yeah, I mean, you hear, you know, on one hand, they want these uh, packed state legislatures in other states to be able to say disregard the electoral college and send their own electors, for example, and they don't want any oversight because the the legislature in that case is is a unitary decider but in this case the legislators legislation decided but the supreme court gets to decide but again people should not look for consistency uh don't worry about hypocrisy put that all out of your mind this is a this is this is about political power some people want to spread it out to everyone and some people want to hold it tight to the richest and most powerful people in the state or in the country it's just it's that easy um and i think like that example you couldn't illustrate it better uh, with that with that example of basically arguing out of both sides of your mouth based on the situation in order to disenfranchise as many people as they possibly can. Absolutely. And, and this is going to have ramifications for Delaware. You know, we um, just went through re- redistricting and, you know, people don't always think about voting rights as being a hot topic here in Delaware because we're, we're not the most relevant in the presidential political landscape. But, you know, we're getting ready to in two years elect a new governor we are under new maps in the legislature. And so, you know, as uh, districts change and populations change, uh, we have more folks going into Sussex County. We may see where the, some of those districts become more competitive. We may see where some in Kent County get more competitive too. Um, and, the, you know, it's essentially a way to shave off, um, you know, a couple dozen votes here, a couple dozen votes there, again, in order to game the system. Um, and I, I think what's frustrating too about all of this is, you know, I started um, advocating uh, for voting rights back in 2004. That's when I first started working for the ACLU. And back then, you know, the biggest proponents for vote by mail were actually Republicans because Republicans like to use vote by mail as well. Um, they saw it as a great thing because a lot of their retirees could vote at home. Um, it was very convenient for them. They were the ones back in the early and mid 2000s that were passing most of the vote by mail statutes. It's really been since more people of color, more low income people have started to use vote by mail that they've suddenly said, oh, no, we've got to put some restrictions on this. And then, you know, lifted up this voter fraud boogeyman to scare everyone, even though Republicans use vote by mail as well. Um, They like convenience and it doesn't help their political uh, aims either, except that they then get to disenfranchise a whole lot of uh, uh, Democrats. And, and you know, the reality is, too, is that if you're looking at privilege levels, you know, people who are uh, black or brown, people who are low income, people who rent, uh, people who move frequently, students, they're all going to have fewer of those resources. And so if you take vote by mail away from somebody who's middle class or higher income and has a lot of privilege, they're going to find a way to still cast their ballot. It's going to be exponentially harder 
for those other folks who are historically marginalized to be able to cast their ballot. And that that's that's really, I think, a, a major killer here. Yeah, and that hits it on the head. I mean, uh, that that calculus is being done in the minds of GOP strategists and Julianne Murray and the <laughs> the Committee for the Public Interest or whatever they are. Like, they, it's not being put in those terms. But yes, they don't want those people voting. They don't want anybody anybody else voting. And and to your point about Delaware, yeah, I mean, it's from a national level, it's not that important. Uh, even even the gubernatorial election, I think, uh, I think, you know, it's it's going to come down to a Democratic primary, if we can be honest. So, you know, the people who are when anything that comes down to a primary is usually, you know, the I don't want to say elites, but people who have enough privilege to go and vote on a September when no one else remembers when to do it. Um, <clears throat> I, I do think that there's an impact in the General Assembly, though, because. Uh, people, uh, people who Carl works with every day are making a lot of gains there, uh, and they seem like marginal gains. You know, you win a Democratic primary because a candidate that has Democratic socialist values or uh, leftist values uh, or Marxist values and wants to be the representative of the whole entire community beats a Democrat who just has corporate values. On paper, it doesn't look like much. But actually, when you get there, it actually is. And so sometimes in these districts, 100 or 200 votes, that's it. I mean, you're, you're you know, uh, that's what you need. I mean, it, it, it's a very small, very slim margins in a lot of these districts uh, for for uh, rep seats, especially. And so, yeah, I mean, there is a, there is an impact, I think, to Delaware at that level uh, when we're trying to, you know, with very limited resources you know, really target specific districts where we can get the most, you know, the, the most legislative bang for the buck, for lack of a better word. You know? Yeah. Uh, if you look at same-day registration, so usually in most states, when same-day registration is sort of fully implemented, so once it's had probably like three or four elections that people have kind of, you know, lived in it a little bit, um, most states see about a 10% increase in their uh, in, in their voter population. And so uh, Delaware would have stood to increase our voter rolls by about 22,000 voters. And again, you know, the vast majority of those voters who use same-day registration are, you know, black and brown people, low-income people, students, uh, people who move frequently, um, you know, all people who, um, you know, spread out throughout the state would have been those, you know, 100 votes or 200 votes there that could have swung elections either way. And so, again, you know, it 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 may not seem important, but this this is really the insidiousness of voter suppression is people expect it to always kind of look like we're going to block, you know, 100,000 people from going to the ballot in this like one location. But instead, it's really this like death by a thousand paper cuts, right? Like they, it, you know, these strategists oftentimes say, if I can cut out, you know, 10 votes here and 30 votes there and 50 votes here, you know, that's enough to, you know, deliver a margin of victory for me. And and it's 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 really that, you know, brass knuckles and that mathematical, right? Just how can I get to that, that win? And not thinking about, you know, the fact that we're then denying the fundamental right to vote to, to these individuals. Yeah, I, I actually, 
I even take it a step further. I think it's even more insidious, and and I don't know whether people, if you could really get them to sit down and, and, and say this, I don't know whether they would say it or not. I suspect some of them would. But those people who find it, who would benefit from this, the 10% that over two, four, six years the increase is going to be, uh, I think many of these people, GOP strategists, GOP attorneys, GOP representatives and senators, don't think that they should have the franchise. That's just what it is. Um, you, you hear people talk about stakeholders all the time. Who are the stakeholders? Who's coming to the table? Who can make money off of this? Whose political power is based on it? Those are the people who, in, in the belief of some, are, are the, the people who should have the franchise, who should be able to vote, who should be able to do, you know, to, to, to live your civic life, you know, like you'd read about in, in the Federalist Papers or something. Uh, but the people that we're trying to bring into it uh, have just as much right as anybody, but I don't think the people believe that. I, I, I sincerely believe that. I, I, I think the, some of these people are, are really just saying that we want to control who the stakeholders are and who actually has the franchise, and that's it. I, I smiled because so the very first time in my life that I realized I was progressive has to do with this. So I went to um, this program called Junior State of America when I was in high school, and it was like, you know, constitutional law boot camp for the during the summer and uh, i took classes at, at northwestern university in chicago and we were in this constitutional law class and one of my uh classmates he, he was like a you know little mini alex p keaton like he came to class every day in like a suit and you know was very republican and everything and at one point we were talking about voting rights and like the question of the day was like should people be allowed to uh, vote online because uh, you know internet was just kind of becoming a thing and um, he was very strong and he said absolutely not you know if we make it more accessible you know these people in these like mobile homes they're going to be able to vote uh, on their computer in their mobile home and those people don't know as much about politics as I do and my parents do and you know I don't think we want all of these uneducated people to be able to vote and I like lit into him in the media in, in the class. I was I just, you know, set him on fire. And afterwards the professor was like, oh, it's really great that there's still some progressives out there. And I didn't even know what a progressive was at the time. Um, but uh that that was my my first experience. And I've I've run into that a long uh, many times in my career after that, that there are people who oftentimes don't believe that we really do want everyone to be able to vote. And I think, again, a lot of that goes back to um, what we talked about at the very beginning in terms of accountability. Um, you know, legislators want to be able to oftentimes do their work without fully being held accountable. And if they can have an easy election versus a hard election, they would always opt for the easy one, right? And so, you know, sometimes there isn't always the incentive to make sure that everyone can get out there and be able to vote and, and, and to be able to exercise their democratic choice. And that's why we need people who can, I think, you know, prioritize the um, values of, uh, uh, of America versus their own kind of naked partisan and political interests. But 
Unfortunately, that's, I think, becoming more and more scarce out there in the political world these days, that it's all about what's going to benefit me versus here's what our norms are, here's what our values are, and we're going to stick to that even if it's tough, even if it makes our lives harder, even makes my next election a little bit harder, um, that that just that that just doesn't happen as frequently. Yeah. Well, Mike, thanks for jumping on uh, on short notice. Um, I really appreciate it. We're going to try to turn this around very quickly. And when I say we're trying to do it, Carl's going to try to do it. <laughs> I always make that very clear. I just talk into the microphone. Uh, whatever you hear at the end of the day, when it, people are like, wow, it really sounded good. You put that stuff in there. I was like, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't do any of that. <laughs> That's Carl. So, uh, yeah, I, so we will link to everything we just talked about, number one. Number two, uh, I, to say the date again, I think that it's the 15th is the final day for registration now. That's right. So the 15th. So you got to register um, and, you know, in order to be able to vote on the 8th, um, you can start voting early, uh, I believe, 10 days before the election. So there will be early voting sites in all three counties. Um, but other than that, um, unless you have an excuse to be able to vote absentee, you're going to have to show up on election day. Yeah. And are the voting, the uh, the early voting sites 10 days ahead, are they going to be the same sites as they were for the primary? I believe so. There may be one or two additional added, but they're they're required to have um, one per county. And then I believe one in the city of Wilmington as well. Um, okay. So I, I think we're looking at probably about four, maybe five. Cool. And we'll, we'll link to all that as well. Uh, folks, the uh, the battle continues. What can we say? Um, I really appreciate uh, you guys tuning in. Uh, you know how to hit us up uh, at patreon.com slash the Highlands Bunker. We would really appreciate uh, a little love there. Um, you know how to hit up the ACLU. Uh, we have actually a lot of stuff planned uh, to collaborate not only with the ACLU, with, with some other organizations too, uh, and with the Delaware Call. So you're going to see a lot of things uh, happening in the near future. Um, Mike, I'll talk to you soon. Appreciate it, Rob. Hope, hopefully not when there's another disaster. Uh, yeah, let's talk. talk about happier things next time. Yeah, maybe the, maybe it'll be a, a Cleveland-Philadelphia World Series. That would be fun. Uh, I'll be so conflicted. Sorry. To, to root for. So, so, sorry, Carl. Well, you know what we say, and we also, we never say progressive is best, because left is best.